listening to Humanize Me with Bart Campolo. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the show. And I've gotten some lovely comments about our, our conversation with Derek Gaunt. People were like, that was so calm. And yet he had a, he had a lot to say, <laughs> but they were like, it was calm. Right, like, right. You know, I was like, yeah, he's a hostage negotiator. He's there to calm you down. That's true. I, you know, I was thinking the same thing listening to him. I really liked his voice and just how he approached everything. It was he, he does have like a zen kind of um, effect on the room. At no point during that conversation did I did I seriously consider murdering everybody in the room with me. <laughs> <laughs> so, so you were uh, safe. He did his job. Yeah, yeah. He had he had me he had me very very calm. So, but but yeah. So that was fun to do a, a conversation interview, um, a conversation episode rather. And now we're gonna we're gonna try to carry some of that fresh energy into doing one of our old-fashioned question and response episodes. Do you like calling it a Q&R better than calling it a Q&A? I, I mean, the, the, dog, the dogmatic, you know, fundamentalist in me likes to call it A because like, you know, I will answer the question <laughs> right. uh, definitively <laughs> and once and for all. But no, the, let's see, the, the more accurate nomenclature would be Q&R. Right. Well, I have a Q if you have the R. Let's see. Let's, let's fire it up and see what happens. Okay. So this is from a listener who says, Bart, I wanted to mention a couple of things. I guess I have listened to every one of your podcasts over the years, and I have an ongoing observation. First, I've always been interested in and impressed with your inner city work, working with mainly, I assume, the black and white poor. But I've never heard you discuss the subject much. Why is that? I wonder what your thoughts are about the race dilemma in America. Do you see possibilities for real change in the future? I've always been concerned about this stuff, but I've given up hope for any kind of significant improvement. Wow. There's a heavy question coming out of the gate. Yeah. I mean, the first, you know, and uh, the first thing we got to say is, do, who did this come from? Do you know? This is from Randy Hughes. Ah, I mean, the first thing we have to say, Randy, like that's amazing. Like back, John, John, do, do you remember, did, did they give Sunday school pins when you were growing up in church? Like for, 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 <laughs> for like attendance? attendance? Yeah, yeah. yeah. All right, I feel like we need to come up with a humanize me. Like, I, you know, if you have listened to, you know, 150 episodes, here's your pin. <laughs> I think that would be a great thing to do. That's good. Um, so anyway, first of all, thanks for sticking with us, Randy. And that's a really good question. And I think that the first observation I would make is you're absolutely right. I worked for the better part of my life, lived and worked in inner city ghettos um, in Philadelphia, uh, in Minneapolis, and ultimately here in Cincinnati where I live now. Um, and I, I I spent the early days and the later days at street level, just being a neighborhood guy working, you know, the few blocks around my house where there were lots and lots of people struggling. And then in the middle of that time, I was running an organization called Mission Year that recruited young people to live and work among the poor. And so I was placing teams of people in neighborhoods in Chicago and Oakland and Atlanta um, and in Philadelphia 
Um, and and were those volunteers mostly young people themselves? Yeah, I would recruit I would recruit college students gotcha. uh, or, or, or recent college graduates to give a year of their life and put them in teams of six or seven people, move them into a house in a neighborhood, and they would do sort of a combination of community service work where they would just they, they would volunteer at a local public school or at a mm. at a shelter or a hospital where they would just you know something was already going on they would just sort of be good neighbors and volunteer there and then they would actually build relationships in their neighborhood i mean they would literally in, in the beginning of the year sort of go door to door and introduce themselves to their neighbors and try to cultivate relationships in the neighborhood with kids and with adults and old people and in the context of those relationships just try to figure out what it meant to be a good neighbor in mm -hmm. a neighbor, in a, in a really poor neighborhood. And, uh, it's funny because, you know, I, there are a lot of things about my Christian journey that I'm em embarrassed about. Um, and there's some that I have just hugely mixed, some I'm really proud of. And then there's some I have hugely mixed feelings about. And my whole shtick as an inner city missionary, I am hugely conflicted about. Really? Wow. Yeah. I don't think I've ever heard you say that before. So you so you, you sort of look back at this huge portion of your life with sort of like a mixed emotions. Yeah, I mean my mo like my heart was good, my motives were good. I thought I was righteous because in contrast to most of the people I knew that were doing inner city work, most of them it was a fairly naked effort to evangelize vulnerable people. To go like when people were really needy, you could provide them with some goods or services, food or, you know, tutoring or some educational thing. And that would give you the opportunity to blast them with the gospel and win them to Jesus. Mm -hmm. And so when I was running mission year, it was really much more about developing authentic relationships with people that wouldn't otherwise know each other. Bring these college kids in, put them in a neighborhood, but have them be in the minority. You know, have all these privileged white kids be minority in their neighborhoods and not have them be running programs, but have them be working underneath local people in their programs and, you know, studiously trying to keep them from doing evangelism. I mean, they were, mm. they were actually forbidden to try to lead anybody to Christ in the first few months that they were there. Because it's wow. like, you don't, you don't know these people. You don't know this life. Like, who, who are you? Mm. Um, but while we were really cool and like progressive in our, in our work, what I realize now is, is that we may not have been trying to overtly evangelize people to Christian belief systems, but we were definitely, in, in some ways it was more insidious. I think we were ultimately trying to evangelize people to, to middle-class white American values. Mm, interesting. Um, yeah. Uh, you know, there, there was a sense in which we put these very smart, very warm, very friendly young white people in the neighborhood and they had nothing but time so that they would be going to kids' games and they would be doing service projects and they would have time to help people work through their conflicts with the power company or, you know, they would be advocates. And, and in a sense, they were really, they were there. And then when I moved in the neighborhood myself, moved back the same way, like I was kind of the white knight. 
Like, hi, I've got time. I'm available. I'm friendly. I'm here to help. How can I make your life better? Like, let's get you but a better- But you were there to help. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Like you, you weren't just you. You weren't just saying that. You were like your heart was, as you said, in the right place. You wanted to do these sure. people good. Good. But what's the underlying message when a rich white guy shows up with talents and access and white privilege and all of those things, and starts doing like starts being the best neighbor in the neighborhood? Like, like what happens when I can go to your kids? basketball games and I can tutor your kid for two hours, but you can't because like you're scrambling to make a living mm. and your kid's like, Bart, this Bart, that Bart took us to a game. Bart did this. I like, there's something, there was something weirdly undermining about that. Mm. And, and what I found was, is that sometimes the stronger neighborhood, the stronger families in any neighborhood that I was working in were the most resistant to building a friendship with me. Because they didn't, on the one hand, they didn't need my support. But on the other hand, I think they were a little bit like, what are you trying to do here? Right. Who do you think you are? Like, you're not really part of our neighborhood. And, and again, like, I, you know, was I subtly trying to send messages to kids about the importance of education or of using correct English or of developing goals that were more middle class. I, I think I was. I would see people that were, you know, that were dr smoking a lot of weed and drinking a lot. And I would sort of like subtly judge that and contrast that with, you know, the way that my friends and I were living. And I think, you know, I, I think right. that there was a sense in which we we were really, in a sense, almost like cultural colonizers. Mm. And I didn't I didn't think of it that way at the time. And I built a lot of really good relationships, but a lot of times those relationships were were based on like I showed up helping and made friends with people by helping them. And that is not how you make authentic friendships. Well, the, it, it, it wasn't authentic in the sense that... Um, it was unnatural. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, just think of about course. it. Like, imagine if I just showed up in a middle-class neighborhood and done the same things. Hey, right. can I take your kid to a ball game? Hey, you know, how can I pray for you? Hey, um, you know... Can I help you do with your yard work or, you know, like, yeah, like, yeah. That so, wouldn't so go over. That wouldn't no, go but over. It's, ba it's based on this idea that the, the inner city areas or these poor, poor places are in need of help. And so you're there to help. But in the process, how do you, how do you really stay authentic and humanize the, the people you're helping? I think is the, is the question behind the question. Or just like, what's, what's a real relationship? You know, right. I mean, because, I mean, what I think now, I mean, and I, don't, I didn't figure this out until very close to the end, was that it's really good to help your friends. I mean, it's really, it's really important to help your friends. It's even important to help your neighbors. But helping people isn't a good way to make friends. Helping people isn't a good way to get to know your neighbors. Like, it's unnatural because in the end, 
if the relationship starts out with, I have a resource and you have a need, it, we, it kind of defines the relationship. Like I'm a person in, in power. You know, I had more money than like I, all those years I lived in the inner city. Mm-hmm. I always had more money than every, anybody. I wasn't rich, but I had more money than anybody in my neighborhood. And so right. when, when people would come up against a problem financially, it was very natural for them to say, hey, could you help me with this? Could you loan me? You know, and, and sometimes under certain circumstances, I would go like, well, what's the money for? And if it was for a thing that I judged to be a righteous reason, then I would, you know, I would try to be helpful. I would try to come up with money. And you go like, you know, I help some people with tuition. I help some people, you know, uh, get the money to, to, to get a suit so that they could apply for a certain kind of job. Right, but if they're going to go buy drugs with it. Right. Or just get a new TV. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so okay. there was a sense in which I was, you know- well, I'll make a decision about whether or not that is a righteous spend or not a righteous spend. And it's just, it's, it's not even that, the, the, like, I think there are things that are more and less righteous to buy, but like, you don't want, like, you don't want to be in a position like that with a friend of yours. Like, you don't, you don't want to be asking your, like, think about it in your own life. Mm-hmm. You don't want to, it's very hard to be friends with somebody who either has a lot more resources than you do. Or a lot less resources than you do. Well, yeah. And, and another an analogy here that comes to my mind is that of like a friendly work relationship, like someone who is maybe a, an employee of mm-hmm. yours, mm-hmm. you know, but you, and you're, it's very friendly. The whole affect is, is friendliness. We're together. We're doing this, you know, we're on a, a shared mission and we're living life. And maybe we, we go to dinners together sometimes and things like that, right? Until, until, the, until like sales fall off and then you get fired and I still work here because I own the business. Right. Or there's, uh, or, or something else comes up where it's like it, it betray, it, it shows you what the, the real the transactional, relationship is. Yeah, That's right. yeah. That's right. And so I think that, you know, I, I'm not like- but, but I don't think that's to disparage those- relationships either. Do you know what I mean? Like I no, would you never just gotta say- know what they are. You just got to know, know what they, they are. are. And, and I think the funny thing was, is that I was always trying, talking about things and, and trying to pretend that these relationships were on the level. Right. And, and, you know, and some of it was- well, did, did, did you believe that? Well, yes and on no. On some level? No, because uh, like on some level, like I saw these as needy people who I was trying to lift up trying mm-hmm. to get kids into better schools or help them overcome their drug addicted parents or, you know, whatever, whatever the thing was. And like, there's nothing wrong with that on one level, but like in a sense, within your own community, that, that really is being a good neighbor. But when you show up in another community just to do that, it's something else. And especially when you layer onto it, like I wanted all these people to buy into, if not my belief system, at least to like be part of this community that we were building, we would have dinners on Monday nights and everybody everybody who was part of our fellowship would come. And the question is like, did people sometimes come to the dinners because they were like, well, that's the price of having Bart be an ally Mm. and having his money be, you know, having his resources be available. And you're like, yeah, sure they did. And, and, and in fact, if people stopped 
coming and being part of the community, I was like, hey, well, you know, like, why, why would I keep extending myself for this person? They don't want anything to do with, they don't want to be part of this, this fellowship that we're building here. And so that's a weird in, a way of incentivizing you to be part of my fellowship. What if there were no, what if there were no services available? What if there were no, what, 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 what if we weren't swapping out resources or if, what if I wasn't showing up with Thanksgiving turkeys or, or, um, help with school, you know, would people have still wanted to hang out with me? Yeah. What, what, what if the dinners, instead of Marty and I buying the food, preparing the food, and then everybody eating dinner together, like a family dinner, what if it had been a potluck and everybody had to bring some food each week? Would people have still come? So are you sort of reevaluating on some level what, uh, whether you feel like you were now, whether you now feel like you were lying to people in some way or like deceiving them for their own good kind of thing and like uncomfortable with the, the power imbalance and that kind of thing? I never, it's, it, I don't so much think of it as deception because I wasn't pretending it was anything other than it was. Um, and I'm thinking right now, I'm thinking mostly about those last nine years when I was in Walnut Hills, just my family and my friends, and we were trying to trying to do that thing. Um, and, and, and by that time, you know, I was so far away from trying to like get people to believe. I mean, and you know, you're in an American inner city ghetto, especially one that's mostly black. Everybody already believes in God. Every drug right. dealer in my neighborhood believed in God. <laughs> right. Um, you know, uh, so, th so that, that wasn't the issue. The issue was, are, are you living a righteous life or are you living a healthy life or whatever that mm -hmm. was? So I, like, it wasn't so much about deception. It was about, I think that there was a sense in which I felt like because I was able to, like, I, like my house was clean and I had enough food and I, I, I had a good education and I was kind and, and sweet. Like I thought like, I'm a better person than most of my neighbors. Um, and I think even some of my neighbors thought I was a better person than some of my neighbors. But I was you acting- You were used to being this, you're used to being this guy. Right. And, 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 and the weird thing is, is that I, you know, if I had grown up in that neighborhood, I would not have been the guy I was and I wouldn't have had the kind of discretionary time I had and I wouldn't have had the resources accessible. I wouldn't known, have known how to make certain kinds of phone calls. And I used to think that was cool. Like I've brought my white privilege and put it to, in the service of my neighbors. And I guess on some level, there were some really good things about that, but I might have been saying with my mouth, I don't think I'm better than anybody here. Mm -hmm. But, I but on some level, you thought you, you, you did think that. How could you not? Like, right. You know? Well, there's a, certain, there's a certain thing, too, about like, so you're this connected guy, you know, with, with you know, an, an Ivy League education, all this kind of stuff. And then you come and you, and instead of, I mean, I'm sure on some level you thought, I, and I could be, I could be doing, all, all this like glamorous stuff right now, but I'm here. I'm, 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 um, lowering myself or I'm like bringing myself to, yeah, just to even the, the choice to be there. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Like it wasn't a natural place for me to be. Um, 
I was there on a mission. And, and you know, here's the, here's the thing I feel the worst about is every month I wrote a moving letter about the work that we were doing. And, and don't get me wrong, I didn't write letters about how I had led everybody to Jesus. But I wrote letters about the way I was interacting with my neighbors and the things I was seeing in the neighborhood. And they were aimed to make the people reading them think, wow, those people are really up. Like life is hard where Bart is. Mm-hmm. People are really suffering. Look at, look at the, the struggles that those people are going through. And you know, initially, it was, it was nakedly to raise money. At the end, I think it was just like, this is my identity. Like, I'm your eyes and ears showing you what urban poverty and urban injustice looks like. But there mm-hmm. was a subtext of like, aren't I cool that I'm here? Aren't I? Yeah. Like, like can you yeah. believe that I, that I know these people? Is it, like, aren't I badass? Um, mm-hmm. And I was kind of pimping the, the suffering of my neighbors to make myself look good. Mm. I was using them as illustrations of very real truths. Don't get me wrong. Like, you know, like kids in my neighborhood did get shitty educations and people did get pulled over by the cops unfairly. And, you know, and it's, it is rough to grow up when your mother's mother's illiterate and, and, or when your father's abusive, like, and so like, yeah, these were real things that are going on, but like, I worked my way into those f- families as as a kind of a friend, but then like I was telling stories about those people. And I just don't think if I had been a real friend, I would have been so quick to tell stories about my friends to other people that would find them sort of emotionally titillating. Mm. You know, or, or, you know, I, I mean I'm that's sort of a trafficking that, in tragedy. I, I mean, I'm sure you're 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 sort of like going through this reevaluation now on the outside of it in a way that you didn't at the time. And that's why you're kind of like, Oh yeah. Seeing, seeing it more negatively. But, but also, um, also the times have changed. Like I don't, you know, I was talking to Roman, you know, cause Roman was there, you know, Miranda was there. Like we were all yep. living in this neighborhood and Roman's like, can you like, can you imagine if you told all your friends now, like I'm going to move into a black neighborhood so that I can be a, a you know, a good neighbor and make a difference in the lives of people. People would be like, right. you know, that just wouldn't fly in this era. Um, people would would rightly call that out and say, "There's something, there's something grossly inappropriate about that." Right. And right. or they would look at the letters that I was writing and saying, "Like you're pretending to be to, to treat like on the face of it, you're treating people like you're a friend or, or like that you respect them, but then the way you write about them." Shows right. a, like, you know, yeah, I sort of go like, what would the people in my neighborhood have been thinking if they would have read my newsletters? Well, I mean, I think it's awesome that you're at a point where you're able to no, reflect on all this stuff. It's not really. I mean, like, I, you know, like, it's, it's, in some ways, like, I, 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 I can't take a lot of uh, credit for stopping doing something that I think wasn't really very good. And, and you know what's funny is like, I don't like, I don't know that it was wrong of me to live in the neighborhood. I just think like this kind of aggressive, I'm going to become your friend whether you want me to or not 
Like I'm going, like I'm here to help. That was the problem. Like, right. like I still, you know, I still live in a black neighborhood. Like I live in a different, when I moved to LA, I, you know, for three years, I, you know, we lived in kind of an apartment in Los Feliz, which is decidedly not an underclass neighborhood. But when we moved back, you know, we bought a house in Evanston in Cincinnati. It's, you know, it's a working class black neighborhood. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the difference is, is that I'm just, I'm just living here. Like, and there's some, I'm not the only white person here. I, I guess in some levels, you know, I, I, I'm a gentrifier. Um, but, you know, I'm a different kind of gentrifier because like, I'm very comfortable in the black community. I'm very comfortable with African-American culture. And so like, you know, so I move pretty seamlessly in this neighborhood, but like everything I'm doing now is natural. Like I have no overt mission to help anybody. Right. Um, and so it's not that I don't think it's okay to place yourself in, in situations where you're going to have direct relations. But I think like, I think you just have to recognize in some sense that, that the natural limitations of cross-cultural relationships, because, you know, cross-cultural relationships, unless, unless it's like romance, like most of the time and Rome and cross-cultural romantic relationships are, have a higher degree of difficulty. Like they are more challenging. That, that, that's, that's, that's a harder dive. Um, but without the, but, but, but sometimes the, the sexual or the romantic energy enables people to connect. But, but when you talk about cross-cultural just friendships, mm -hmm. there can be some really great cross-cultural friendships or teaching relationships or mentoring or, you know, exchanges. But intimacy typically is some, you know, like your best friends typically are people that you have a natural understanding with because you grew up in similar circumstances. Yeah. And- and so, you know, to oversell my relationships with my black neighbors, uh, would, would, you know, we're friendly. Mm -hmm. um, and, and, you know, and speaking to Randy's question, I, I, I'm not, you know, the, the racial dilemma in this country, like it's way, way above my prayer grade to try to break it down or understand it. But like on a, on a lived experience, like as a guy who's lived and spent much of his life just, you know, in black neighborhoods, I really believe that when people work hard to understand it and to kind of develop a culture, to learn about the culture that they're, that's on the other side of the fence from them. And like, I think that a lot of really wonderful things can happen, but I really believe that um, we're a tribal species and that we feel most comfortable when we're around people that are like us and that there's a reason why people in Scandinavian countries where it's all the same or people in Zimbabwe where it's mostly all the same, like that, that people tend to feel most comfortable when they're surrounded by their own people. Mm. And I think a country like this one that's sort of based on throwing everybody in the same space is bound to have trouble um and that yeah that th there's always you know that, that that things can always get better but if you say to me like do i really think that there's an answer to the racial dilemma of the united states i, I don't i think like you learn to manage that con that tension but i don't think you ever eliminate it to a black kid and a white kid growing up on the same street in the neighborhood that I grew up in, the the, the suburbs of of Pennsylvania, Philadelphia, 
Mm-hmm. Like, I don't care if they go to the same school, if they have the same income, if they if their parents drive the same car, if they're if their parents work at the same place. It's like there's still a fundamental there. There's some differences in the experience that they're going to have at school in the world. Like those kids are in different situations. Um, right. And it does, but- not to say they couldn't be best friends. Okay. It's right. not to say they couldn't be best friends. But I'm just saying that like when you get when you stretch it out a little bit far, even those kids have some very different things going on. But then when you stretch it out farther and you go like a guy like me who grew up an Ivy League East Coast guy moves into a, a working class black neighborhood in Cincinnati. And you're like, yeah, the, the the distance between me and my next door neighbor culturally is gigantic. Mm-hmm. And we can be friendly and we can be friends and we can support each other and help each other. And like when his car breaks down, I can help push it, you know, push it up the driveway and he can come over and show me how to, how to garden in a different way. Like there can be a real exchange. But what I'm saying is like, when we get down to the, like, let me talk about my childhood and what I'm going through with my dad or what it's like to be me. There's a limit. And you know, and I'm a, I'm a fairly enlightened guy who spent a lot of my time studying and trying to learn about the black community, and I feel a limit. And then, you know, you just take people that are that are just not exposed on either side. Right. And you go like- well, Oh, yeah, they're much worse off. Yeah. yeah, you could send them to the same school, but like they're going to sit with each other. They're going to sit with their own kind at the cafeteria, and there's going to be some natural tension there because mm-hmm. we naturally, you know, evolution at work, like we tend to fear that which is different from us. For right. good reason, you know. Yeah, but you fear you fear it less in a very mixed multicultural environment than you do if you aren't familiar at all. It's it's almost like you I know, don't know that that's true, John. I don't know that that's true okay. because I, I like I think a lot of times like when I see in this in this city when 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 people of two different cultures live very close to each other. The one guys are in the backyard playing their music one way and eating a certain kind of food, and the people living next door are like, "Shut the fuck up!" Like mm-hmm. you know, that, God, just, right? And that is cultural. You're you're right to call yeah. that cultural. Yeah. yeah. And so and so, I I think that like you know the the people I know that had the most hope about racial reconciliation in this country were people that lived in Iowa. <laughs> um, and 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 because theoretically, they were like, I'm not prejudiced and I love everybody and stuff like that. And I go, yeah, 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 I'm sure you do until you have to live with people. Right. And the and the, the places with the the wildest protests are, are very lily white Portland, you know. Yeah, um, yeah. You put people on top of each other and like, you go like, well, you know, the, the answer to all of this discrimination and all of this distrust is just to actually have people be right, get to know each other. And you go like, no. No. Yeah, but I don't think that I don't think knowing you, I don't think you you're as anti multiculturalist as you you're sounding right now. Like I don't think that you I don't think you believe that America is wrong to celebrate or want diversity. Like I think that's a value that you probably hold on some level too, right? I mean, I I, I mean I do. Like like see the thing is like I really believe. So, I mean, look at the history of. You look at the history of the United States and, and like as far as um, Randy's question, do you see possibilities for real change in the future? My answer is is just uh, based on history, yes. Yeah, like look, because there's been real change in the past. In the past, yeah. 
Yeah. And so, and like so we're on that path. Right. So you're right. And, and I shouldn't be so, such a doomsayer. I, it, it's, it's, but it's a little bit like losing, it's like losing weight. Like, you know, if you're really overweight, um, the first 20 pounds come off real easy. Uh huh. Okay. Um, and so like, if you wanted to consider our country's racial problems, like slavery, like you can make a lot of things a lot better just by, you know, abolishing slavery. <laughs> you just you've just improved racial racial problems in America by a whole lot. You go like, how about civil? <laughs> right. How about basic civil rights? You go, you know what? We're you know, you, but then you get down to like, how about people being comfortable? You know, as they walk down the street with each other, how about being people being being excited when their kid is marrying somebody from a different race? Or from a different culture, and you go like, right, right. You, you think we're going to solve that problem? Like, like, uh, okay, and yeah, the, and some those, those pounds come off a lot harder, right, right. And someone might say, well, you know, you just have to get used to it, mix people more. And I think what you're saying is it's more complicated than that. I, I think it is, and yeah, and, and and again, you know, so so I mean, the first part of his question was, why don't you talk about it? And I'm like, well, I, I have a lot of, I, 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 I I'm. I don't want to say I'm ashamed, but I have a lot of mixed feelings about the work that I did. Mm-hmm. And um, it sounds like you're still reckoning with yeah, those yeah. feelings. Yeah, yeah. I haven't solved. I, I haven't. I haven't come to a conclusion on that. Um, and and if you say like, do you see hope? I go like, yeah, but um, you know the the polarizing politics that I see right now and stuff like that. All of you know. I, I mean, on both sides. Like, I think the racial rhetoric of the right is really, really problematic. You know, really problematic. I shouldn't use that word. That's just such a hipster word. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I've got real worries about white supremacy, but I have equal worries about left wing cr- craziness, where sometimes people are like w- willing to to close their eyes to realities. Like, mm-hmm. like, you know, I can, I can give you a whole analysis of why young black men are incarcerated more than young white men or more than anybody. But like a, part of that has to do with the rate at which young black men commit crimes. Mm-hmm. And like sometimes, well, you can't say that, you know, that's a big problem. And so, you know, sometimes I think like- Yeah, I, I, I think I, you're, like, mo- you're moving the point of racism though. You're saying like, it's not- in other words, the racism isn't now arresting the young black man that committed a crime. The racism was back when the, the yeah, neighborhood was formed right. that there, young black man grew and like up I in. Said, I don't even want to go into that because like, yeah, I'm, yeah, yeah. I'm not I, sophisticated enough to do that, but you're right. But what, what, what I will say is this. A lot of the left-wing politics in this country is about gaining special rights for victimized people. And- and while I understand the impetus behind that, I worry that when you start defining who's the victimized people and who are the vulnerable people, that you're, you're, you're concretizing and you're permanizing distinctions that theoretically you actually want to move past. And you want to go like, hey, we're not going to judge people on whether they're black or white. We're, you know, we're not going to judge people on whether women or, or men or, 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 or trans or, or straight. We're just going to judge each individual by the content of their character and by the, by, you know, and you're like, you, you know, and so like, I'm not sure on either the left or the right, the conversation is going in a direction that leads me to believe that we're not going to a hundred years from now still be defining people. Right, right, right. In, in, in these ways that are, you know, kind of counter to this narrative of we're all, 
we're all human brothers and sisters. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. so, so, yeah, so Randy, the reason I don't talk about it is because the more I talk about it, the more you're like, I oh, know, I see why I don't talk about it. Like you're, you're confused <laughs> and, and, and problematic. And then, so the reason I don't talk about it is because I don't, I don't know what the hell I'm talking about. Um, even though I'm super comfortable with black people on a day-to-day basis, like put me in a black church, put me in a black political meeting, put me in a black barbershop. Like you go like, I know, I know my way around a lot better than a lot of white people. Cause I spend a lot of time there and I I read a lot and I care a lot. And like, like, so, so like, I'm I'm not trying to deny the fact that like, yeah, I'm pretty comfortable in that world. Um, Mm -hmm. but like, I don't, on on another level, I don't know what I'm talking about. And then, and then on, on, on this level of like, do I see hope? And the answer is like, yeah, like, I guess, I guess like in many things, I'm hopeful, but not optimistic. Like I'm hopeful in the sense of, I think things can be better. And I think that what we do makes a difference and how we try makes a difference, but I'm not optimistic in the sense of like, I don't really think we're, we're moving in the right direction right now in terms of the way we talk or act or or create policy around, around race. Mm-hmm. And, th- and and you know what? That's probably all I ought to say. That that, that and, it's, and this truly was a Q and R because <laughs> I, I ain't got no answers. <laughs> There's no answers. There's no answers. Uh, did you want to mention that uh, YouTube video before we go? Yeah, it's, this is t- a, a total segue. This has nothing to do with anything. Yeah. Okay. But this is a non segue. Anyone, right? Anyone that listens to this podcast knows that we, all of us, who care, who are every, every guest I have, and and you and me and most of the people that listen are in love with the idea of human relationships being transformative and the possibilities of, of making a difference in other people's lives through connection. And uh, the other day I was, I was checking out a group, I was checking out what was playing in Cincinnati that weekend. And there was a Philly based band called Mount Joy that was coming to Cincinnati and I couldn't go but I looked them up to see what they were about. And they had this song, um, I think it's called Silver Linings. Um, and it's a song that when I, I didn't fully understand the lyrics, the first line is up on the mountain, caught on, caught on the rail line. And I was like, what are they talking about? It turns out it's a song about addiction. And I, I wouldn't necessarily figure that out by listening to it, but then I watched the video. And the video is just one of the most beautiful evocations of just the value of, of, of being together with somebody when they're struggling. Mm-hmm. And I just couldn't recommend it more highly. If you, want, if, you, if you want in three minutes to sort of have just a little vision of what it looks like when people love each other. Um, mm-hmm. and you'll recognize all the facial expressions, all the bodily movements you've been there. You've, and there's nothing they do in this video that you haven't done or been, a, or had done for you at some point in your life. But the idea of doing those things for somebody because you want to help them heal is just so beautiful to me that I just, I just want to recommend it. So put a link to it on the show notes. If anybody made it this far, it, it'll be sort of like a, a little, gold star that you get for suffering through the rest of the podcast (laughs) beautiful all right listen well thanks bart we'll get back we'll get back we'll have a good conversation next time and uh and and we've got some good things lined up but thank you john for just uh, being being part of the humanized me world and thank you for listening all of you 
and we'll catch you next time on the show. For more on BART, go to bartcampolo.org. If you like this podcast, please consider supporting it every month and get extra content for it. Go to patreon.com slash humanize me. Our patrons do make the show happen. Follow us at Humanize Me Pod on Twitter and Humanize Me Podcast on Instagram. You can also join other listeners on our private Facebook group. Just search Humanize Me on Facebook. To ask your own question on the show, leave it as a voicemail at 424-291-2092. That's 424-291-2092. And finally, please review us on iTunes. It really helps. Catch you next week. Humanize Me is a production of Jux Media. You could be larger than life.